you doing? I'm awesome. How are you? I am feeling the August acceleration where time seems to speed up as the semester gets closer. Oh, I do have to teach in like two weeks. And Um, of course I'm ready. Right. I'm three weeks out and I haven't touched anything. Start putting my syllabus together. (laughs) Yeah, but no, it's impressive how time seems to speed up the closer you get to the start of the semester. So, hey, actually, let's wish Chris a happy birthday because this might get posted on your birthday. Oh, that's right. We're, we're, we were a little bit behind schedule, so we're trying to get this episode out Monday, which is my birthday. I'll be 26. <gasps> Congratulations for going back in time, Chris, plus, on your birthday. Plus hey. two decades in a year. <laughs> well, let's introduce our guest, and maybe she'll wish you a happy birthday, too. All right, so on the podcast today, along with Kara, who's one of my best friends in the world, is one of my other best friends in the world, Joe Weaver, hey. who until like a week ago was two offices down from me, and I'm not bitter. It's not at all. In Oregon. Let's see. He does wish you well, Joe. Uh, yes, I do. And I wish you well, Chris. Happy birthday. Thank you. So Joe is one of the co-hosts of another podcast called Speaking of Race. They started off around the same time as us, but they have like 700 episodes and they are hilarious and extremely articulate and very, very, very informative. And I want to ask Joe in a few minutes about her experience with that, because I know it came about when she took on teaching the race class here at the University of Alabama. Um, I want to ask Joe about her new job. She's got a book coming out that I want to ask her about. And as with Kara, we know I actually learn what my friends do for work when we interview them on podcasts because the rest of the time we talk about Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. So welcome, Joe. Thanks. It's good to be here. Where are you actually? I'm in Eugene, Oregon. So you're already in Oregon. Okay. I wasn't sure if you had moved yet. Joe spent a whole evening trying to figure out how to pick the lock to the pod and then ended up just with wire cutters cutting the master lock to get her shit out and it's true it's true so we're doing this in stages so i'm here by myself dave has the kids camping oh fun took the key to the pod up mount rainier wow so tell us about the new job what department you're in what you're going to be doing all that good stuff so i'm an assistant professor of international studies and part of what i was hired to do here is to help develop a new global health focus in the international studies department that has existed for about a year and is incredibly popular. So that's really exciting. They have more students wanting to be part of this concentration than they have manpower to deal with. And that's really awesome. It's a good problem to have. Yeah, it's a great problem to have. So I will be, I'll I'll actually be teaching many, if not all of the same topics that I have always been teaching. So cultural anthropology, methods, topical stuff on mental health and medical anthropology, and the course on on race and human variation, actually, I'm going to be teaching this fall. So in terms of my everyday, what I'm teaching and what I'm researching, things aren't going to change too much, but um, it's cool to be in an interdisciplinary department with lots and lots of other anthropologists and sociologists and historians and economists and geographers and stuff like that. So I know you're going to be working with Josh Snodgrass up there in some Mm -hmm. respect. He's in the anthropology department. You have a powerhouse department and I guess network for people who'd be listening to this, right? So Josh is up there. Uh, I know they just hired Zachary who's a member of HBA. Who else is up there? Well, your husband, David. 
Yeah, so, yes. so um, Joe and David both left our department, and David Meek is a rock star anthropologist as well. Kristen Yaris, who is somebody that I've worked very closely with, is here. She works on mental health stuff in um, mostly in Mexico, but in other parts of Latin America as well, and she's like a psychological anthropologist. Another anthropologist, biological anthropologist at Oregon is Kristen Sterner. She's pretty awesome. She does a lot with like molecular anthropology stuff. She has a really mm-hmm. fantastic lab. Nelson Tang is also there. And then on the cultural side, there's all kinds of awesome people too. So it's, it's a pretty cool program. Um, uh, will you be taking on grad students at any point in time or things like that, postdocs that you might want to intrigue people with? Yeah. So remember, I'm in international studies. I was just talking about the anthro department, but I have a sort of partial appointment in anthropology that allows me to take on master's and doctoral students. We also have a master's program in international studies with a focus in, you know, sort of global health and humanitarian stuff. Well, there you go, guys. If you want to work with Joe Weaver, take a look at Oregon's program. Yeah. Okay. So now after putting all the pressure on you to tell us about the where you just moved and have had a chance to even unpack into, you have a book coming out. You did shit ton of work in India. Mm-hmm. What's yeah, your book so about? I work in, in two parts of the world, primarily in India and also in Brazil, but I'm really kind of trained as a South Asian anthropologist. So India is where I've spent the most time. My doctoral research was about coping and mental health and social life and gender stuff among women who have diabetes in New Delhi. And that's what the book is about. The book is called Sugar Intention. It's coming out this fall with Rutgers University Press and hopefully will be out in time for the AAA. Didn't I come up with that title? No. Didn't I? <laughs> yes. You did. No, no, no. That's not fair. You, you definitely suggested elements of that title. I think you suggested sugar. So yes. yes, you came up with half of that title. Well done, Chris. I came up with a word that is very common. <laughs> so it's sugar intention, colon, diabetes and gender in modern India. Hmm. <laughs> Joe and I also, like, one of the things I should say, aside from we talked about our, our weightlifting together, the fact that she was down in office, we also have published together. And, and that probably in large part came about because we read each other's work and Joe is like one of the best editors I've ever read. So she does so much great editing. We end up going like, Joe, you, you practically helped us rewrite this. You should be a co-author. <laughs> that's, that's my strategy for just glomming onto other people's work. I'm it works. Kidding. It does work. No, it was fun. I like okay. doing that with you. And we also, so we've only published one paper together. Isn't that right? Yeah, we did that. I think I th- we might have blogged together. I can't remember. But published one paper together. We've written others. And then I've read some of your work. And I send you all of my work at this point because you're a good editor. It is my pleasure. And we, oh, we organized that AAA session once too. Yes. About fieldwork issues. So maybe we should talk about fieldwork now. Yeah, we should. So after I did that doctoral project, my second big research project was in Brazil. And the reason it was in Brazil is because I was living in Brazil anyway. Because <laughs> my partner, David, is an anthropologist who also works in Brazil. And I, so I had this cool opportunity to live there for a year in this rural community where no one speaks any English at all, with absolutely no research agenda. In fact, I didn't even plan to do any work there. And then after I'd been there for a year, I was like, oh, this place is, you know, I've been sort of percolating ideas. And a couple of colleagues and I got funding for a comparative global project that compares my research site in Brazil with my colleague Bonnie Kaiser's site in Haiti and my other colleague Craig Hadley's site in Ethiopia. And that project looks at food insecurity and mental health. So it's more of a nutritional anthropology project, a little bit more than the diabetes one was because, of course, diabetes has to do with nutrition, but I didn't do a lot of 
nutritional biomarkers, not much at all actually in the diabetes work. Anyway, so that's Brazil. So now my third major project, that project is done or almost done. It's been about five years. I'm starting a new project back in India. And that's what I was there doing this summer. And it's really awesome to return to a place that I've spent lots and lots of time, but I'm in a very different part of India now than I used to be. So I've mostly worked in North India, but I ended up with this project sort of by coincidence in South India. And so this is going to be the first time that I'm working in a place where I don't speak the language mm-hmm. and that has its own set of challenges, although I am learning Kannada. And it's also one of the first times that I've worked by partnering with local NGO or it's a public health organization called um, the Public Health Research Institute of India. It's in Mysore, India. And this is the first time I've done it. You know, I've always sort of done like the anthropologists with the knapsack setting up their own Malinowski like long-term field site. And it's a totally different and really cool experience to be partnering with an organization that is already doing this kind of work. So you're working with different people? Or are you working with the same people you, you worked with before? I'm working with a totally new group of people. So I came across this group of people two years ago when I was, I was in India two years ago just for like a reconnaissance mission to sort of investigate potential field sites for a new project because I knew that once the Brazil project wrapped, I was going to want to return to India. And so, you know, it was like a six-week, I wouldn't even call it pilot research. It was really just like running around, connecting with people that I've worked with in the past and also with new people and sort of exploring possibilities. So I, I was in Mysore in Karnataka, which is where I ended up for this research. And I, I was just like Googling around and I found this organization. It turns out that it's run by a professor of epidemiology in the U.S. who was born and raised in Mysore named Purnima Madhavanan. She's at Florida International right now. And the organization was started as part of her doctoral research, which looked at delivery of prenatal and reproductive health care to rural women in the areas around Mysore town. So as part of her doctoral work, she set up healthcare delivery for this pretty large catchment area of rural women. And when her doctoral research ended, she was like, I really don't feel like it's ethical to end the care provision that we've been giving these people. So she set up this NGO called the Public Health Research Institute of India. This was about 10 more than 10 years ago now. And I think it's just a wonderful example of an institution where everything has been done right. And that's great to see because given my background in public health and in global health, I'm often teaching about and critiquing, you know, sort of what goes wrong with international aid and international development. And it's so cool to see an organization where they're doing everything right. Can you give an example of what they're doing right as opposed to things that you've seen done wrong? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it helps, you know, the the fact that the director is from the area originally, but the organization is run by women and for women and it employs only local women. So they have a staff of about 13 or 14 women. And when they first, she and her husband, who's American, when they first started this NGO, they decided they would hire people with master's in social work, which is as close as most people get in India to having master's degrees in social science stuff. But they found out pretty quickly when they hired those folks that these were mostly people from kind of privileged backgrounds who really didn't know how to talk to the underprivileged women with whom they were working, right? And so they were they were well-meaning kids for, for sure, but kids who come from sort of well-to-do backgrounds. So that didn't work. And so what they did was they threw out that idea and they put an ad in the local newspaper saying that they wanted to hire women who like to talk to other women. Hmm. And that was the only qualification that they list. So what that meant was they got this incredible spread of women from various educational backgrounds, caste backgrounds, religious backgrounds, and class backgrounds, none of whom had any formal social science research training. 
and they trained everybody there from the ground up. And so this group of people is just incredibly skilled at all kinds of interview techniques, like cognitive interviewing included, mm -hmm. um, of course, medical case history stuff, but also the kind of stuff I was there doing, which I haven't even told you about yet. You know, it was amazing. So what's also really fantastic is that this group of people is like kind of like a family. Everyone who works there has been there forever. They all truly get along and love each other. And it's just a really wonderful work environment to be in. It's wonderful for them because it makes everybody happy. And that trickles down into their work because everyone's so happy to be there doing the work they do. And so it was just incredible to be a part of that this summer. And it felt wonderful to, to be part of an organization that's really doing it right. That's awesome. And and what what's striking to me about that is one of the things that we, we frequently struggle with is teaching students how to interact. It's hard to teach the social skills. That's one of those intangibles that you're like either, sometimes we say either you got it or you don't. We, I think we try to teach it to, to varying degrees, but there's no good formula. And often you have to bring them along and show them, watch them, give them feedback. And it, it mm -hmm. takes as much or more time than teaching the, the theory and some of the other elements. So that's really fascinating. And yeah. to me, it's also the power of a simple idea. And so much of what all of our work boils down to is just basic talking to people and enjoying talking and enjoying listening. And Absolutely. that can so easily be tossed out with all of the details and, you know, learning the interview skills and whatever skills else you have to learn. But when it gets down to basics, it's the talking and listening that's so key. And so that's brilliant of the people who run this NGO to have boiled it down to, right? Do you enjoy talking to other women? And, you know, using that as the foundation is just wonderful. Not to cut you off, I want to reinforce this point because I've had this same conversation three or four times recently, and it goes to my own field experience, which I know Joe and I have talked about, Kara, you and I have probably talked about it before as well. But when we're on grants or we're on, I mean, we're Americans. So we have like schedules and we have deadlines and we have priorities. So we tend to rush in and try to get things done. And I know Joe and I talked about this when we were writing about how some of the agencies who go in to do work are on a timeline and they will go and push locals to give them data or tell them things. And that pushiness doesn't go over well. And the trick is learning to hang and sit and talk and develop a rapport. And I just had this reinforced this summer because I was at Winter Grin in New York and spent like four hours there just shooting the breeze and had the greatest time. And I was just like thinking it was going to be an hour meeting and how important it was to just to sit and hang out and talk to people to develop that that relationship. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I think you guys are right. I think I think those skills can be taught of sort of being able to sit and talk with people. But you know, it often ends up, with, I think, in teaching being a chicken or egg sort of phenomenon, like, or maybe that's not what I mean to say two sides of a coin phenomenon. I don't know. Insert insert metaphor here. Um, <laughs> I often have students who are either drawn to anthropology because they really like talking to people and then they have to learn the, the methods or they're really drawn to the methods and then have to learn how to talk to people. Yeah. Those are the and ones I get. Both of them can be taught, but I think it's, you know, I came to anthropology because I like to talk to people. 
I was a bench scientist working in a mouse lab. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I need people. <laughs> it's also, of course, I'm going to bring it back to current political climate because how can you not these days? Do it. But the importance of dialogue, just period, because it's gotten so easy right now when somebody disagrees with you to just shut them down with a one-liner or just a couple of words. And how so much of what anthropology boils down to is dialogue. And the moment we shut people down because we disagree with them, we stop doing our work and we stop doing it well. Uh, so I think that's, it's huge. And these are skills that anthropology can teach that students need to have at every level and every single field. So there you go, world. Have all undergraduates take anthropology. Yes, seriously. <laughs> It'll solve all the world's ills, clearly. <laughs> it will. That's true. Anyway, we've gotten far off as we often do. Do you want to tell us about your actual work? that you're doing in India? We've heard about the team, but uh, tell us about the fun science going on. Yeah, so, you know, my, my prior work in India was on, as I said earlier, diabetes and mental health. And the mental health part of that project was a little bit of a surprise. Like I sort of, I, I envisioned before I did that work that I might run into some stuff around mental health, but I wasn't really focusing on the mental health part. I was coming into it thinking of myself as a medical anthropologist who studies chronic diseases, and maybe there'll be a little mental health stuff around along the way. And it kind of ended up being the opposite. So I was working with women who had diabetes. So of course, the chronic disease part was there. The part that was that women wanted to talk about most and that I actually found the most kind of compelling was wasn't actually the disease itself. It was more of the all, all the stuff around it, including mental health. And I think that more so than my focus on chronic disease, the mental health focus of my work is the one that has gotten the most response from both academic and non-academic communities. And it's also the thread that ties together my two major projects, the Brazil one and the India one. Mental health is kind of the common denominator in both of those projects. So with that in mind, the purpose of this new work is to delve deeper into the mental health stuff that I just scratched the surface of in my first research in India, my first big project. And so this is looking at women's mental health, not in the context of chronic disease necessarily. And that I'm taking a really, really broad approach to it because this is the first time that I've designed a study that is explicitly focused almost, I wouldn't say exclusively because anthropologists are holistic after all, but that is principled completely around mental health stuff. So the purpose of this project this summer was simply to start to get a sense of the ways in which women talk about stress and distress in the local language, which is Kannada, and to sort of begin to figure out what that looks like for women. So what are the major causes of it that they talk about? How do they conceive of it? What vocabulary do they use? How do they cope with it? How, how would a woman know when her stress had become more than sort of normal and that she might need to seek some kind of treatment, whether that's biomedical or otherwise? And so that was what I did. I just did these 30 in-depth interviews with a really broad group of women selected through snowball sampling for the most part in the town of Mysore, looking at all that sort of baseline stuff around mental health. Do you find a certain level of stigma in the population working with to talk about mental health even? Yes. Because you know it's a huge issue in the U.S. and so I'm always curious how other cultures address it. Absolutely. So I spent a lot of time talking this summer about stigma with, and I also spent a fair amount of time with mental health professionals in the community talking to them about what they do. So it wasn't just the women, it was also providers. There is a huge amount of stigma around mental health in India. And I'm beginning to realize that that stigma varies between groups. Mm -hmm. And the group of people I work with, which is kind of middle-aged, mostly middle-class women, faces some of the most intense stigma around mental health and mental health care seeking of any group. 
And I, that was something new that I learned this summer. I sort of assumed that stigma was stigma and that it would apply to everybody equally, but it doesn't. And I can talk about why that's the case if you guys want me to, but maybe that's a little off topic. No, I'm curious. That was my question. Okay. So one of the things that I did while I was here was I had a wonderful interview with two psychiatrists, both of whom had trained there in India, in, in Bangalore. So in the state of Karnataka, where I was working, but both of whom had done fellowships in London or maybe elsewhere in the UK. And so they had really interesting things to say about how mental health and mental health care provisioning looks different in the UK as opposed to in India. And what's also cool is that one of them is a juvenile psychiatrist who works with children and youth. And the other one is a gerontologist who works with the elderly. So they're able to talk about like the sort of differences between life course issues as well. And both of them agreed that for their patient populations, so for the, you know, the gerontologist, it's mostly older people with dementia or other kinds of later life mental health issues. And also for the juvenile psychiatrist who is dealing mostly with kids who have learning differences or those kinds of things for the most part. There's very little stigma associated with their patient populations because the patients themselves, in one case children, in the other case elderly, are always being brought into the psychiatrist by other family members. So children are being brought by their parents. And in the case of elderly folks with memory or dementia issues, it's usually adult children who are bringing the parent in. So what that means is they've already got family buy-in, right? The family has already decided that they're happy to take a, or willing at least, to take the person who they think needs treatment to treatment. That does not happen with middle-class, middle-aged women, really at all, almost never. And so for a middle-class and middle-aged woman to seek out psychiatric care implies that she must be crazy. And for a woman to be seen even in the waiting room of a psychiatrist or psychologist or, or a counselor's office is so stigmatizing that if her family were to find out, she could be in big trouble. Even as like a you know, midlife adult, if she's unmarried, it might make it hard for her to get married, for example. So there's this equivalence that people make between mental health care providers and being really crazy because you know psychiatry is not terribly widespread in India. It's relatively speaking new. And so for the most part, it has been addressing only the most intense sort of forms of really debilitating mental illness, less of what we call the walking worried, right? Less of the sort of mild depression and things like that, and more of things like psychosis. So just a real quick clarification. So in the U.S., psychiatry is usually who hands out the meds, and psychology is who you go for talk therapy. Is it, are you talking about the same paradigm there? Or is everyone going to psychiatrists? Well, I'm talking about the same paradigm. But, you know, in the U.S., the biggest providers of mental health care are general physicians. And that's true in India, too. Mm. A lot of times, you know, for example, during my work in, in North India on diabetes, diabetologists and endocrinologists prescribed antidepressants all the time without mm. patients ever going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, just as part of, of sort of routine care for diabetes and seeing that women were distressed and that it was affecting their diabetes management. You could read more about that in my book. done Uh, so is the area you're working in is it considered kind of a small enough area that everybody knows everybody and when something happens everybody finds out Mm. no well the city itself where i work has isn't very large it's close to a million people which sounds like a lot for us but in india that's sort of like a you know comfortably mid-size-ish city Mm -hmm. so it's big enough that not everyone knows each other but that said, people have pretty intense social networks around caste and religion. So even though it's a bigger city by our standards, social connections are a little more proximate. But in any case, 
I should also say there are all kinds of mental health care provisioning or distress management provisioning that are not biomedical in, in India, right? So it's not that everyone is going to psychiatrists or psychologists. Lots of people go to faith healers or to a temple or to a guru or what, you know, there are lots of other ways of dealing with stress. And so I'm referring to the psychiatrists and psychologists because those were the ones I talked to on this trip. But there's right. lots, lots and lots of other sort of stress management stuff out there that I need to get into in future parts of this work. I was going to say, it sounds like these are the women who, just to relate from, from my own perspective in our culture, who have a functional role that they, they fill, right? Whereas the elderly or the young they sort of aren't depended upon to the same extent. So people are watching them and they're in some ways expected to be going through these types of things. But mental health issues really undermine the role and function of these women in this particular, not just jeopardize their, their marriage opportunities, but they're probably, I'm guessing, dependent on to a great extent for roles within, I, I mean, our, just from reading the chapter I read in your book, I, I remember there are several expected roles these, these women are playing. Yeah, middle, middle-aged, middle-class women in North India or excuse me, in South India too, are what people often refer to as a sandwich generation because they are sandwiched between caring for their children and their husbands. So, you know, um, the vast majority of women in this demographic group are married and have children. And many of them also live in a joint family situation, which is becoming less common in India, but is still fairly common, which is where they, after marriage, move in with their husbands and their husband's parents. And part of their job during middle age is also to be taking care of those parents. So they're sandwiched between caring for an older generation and a younger generation at the same time. That's a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's a huge amount of responsibility. And it's also people talk a lot, especially in terms of discussing sources of stress in women's lives about how difficult it is to adjust to a new family and a new household after marriage mm. and how that can work. But it can also be really, really hard, particularly because when women enter their husband's household, they're sort of under the direction. They're like a, an apprentice of their mother's-in-law, which just sets up a dynamic that can be really volatile. Yeah, and really, really stressful. And so they're sort of expected to learn the ropes of managing this household from their mothers in law, which it means that they're often subject to a fair amount of critique about the way they do things. And it can be really hard. So despite the fact that people recognize that that's a stressful time in women's lives, and people recognize that this phase of life for women in India is one that's very involved in the care of others. If a woman develops any kind of mental health problem during that time, there's an assumption that there must be something fundamentally wrong with her, mm -hmm. right? And there are a lot of people watching what she's doing typically in this phase of life. So even if she wanted to seek out, say, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, she'd have to get permission probably. She'd have to ask for money mm -hmm. to go. Um, she probably couldn't fly under the radar and just go by herself. Part of what I'm focused on is the language. So I have a, with, with my colleague, Bonnie, who I mentioned earlier, Bonnie Kaiser, who's just about to start a new job at UC San Diego. She's a psychological anthropologist who works in Haiti. She and I are co-editing a special issue of the journal Transcultural Psychiatry right now about idioms of distress research, which is a fancy phrase for a really simple idea, as we often do in anthropology. It's the focus on the language that people use around stress in various parts of the world. So what sorts of idioms or words or expressions, verbal or nonverbal, do people use to talk about stress? And that's something that people have been looking at in psychological anthropology for only a few decades. Martin Nichter kind of kicked it off in the early 1980s, actually, with work in India. And what's cool about that line of inquiry is that 
focusing really carefully on the ways that people express distress tells you a lot about how they cognitively think about and experience stress. And so that's kind of what I'm doing right now with these interviews. I'm getting them all translated and transcribed as we speak and paying really close attention to the language that women use around stress. And so there are all kinds of challenges associated with doing that in Canada. And in fact, I'm thinking about writing a paper about how to do this kind of work in a place where you don't speak the language. It can be done. Um, the analysis phase of this part of the work is really focused around language that women use to talk about stress. Next summer, I'm going back and I will be working with a larger sample of women. I'll be distilling sort of key phrases or keywords out of these interviews and then going back next summer and doing focus group discussions with a whole bunch of women about these phrases and trying to develop sort of locally derived definitions, if you will, for these concepts. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of an interesting way of backing into... <laughs> cognitively oriented understanding of people's conceptions of distress. There are lots of other ways a person could do this, but mm-hmm. I'm it this way because I'm steeped in this idioms of distress research right now anyway. This sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear more about it as you kind of angle it all. It's going to be pretty neat. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit, shall we? Okay. All right. What? So the other thing that I mentioned at the beginning that, that you do and that you're up to is when you were here, you started teaching Jim Binden's race class, and yes. uh, about the same time that we started this podcast, you and Jim Binden and Eric Peterson started the Speaking of Race podcast. I'd love to hear how that's gone for you. I know that was an area of expertise that you you took on, and you often describe yourself as the foil, but I'm just really impressed with the podcast, and I want to hear how it's been for you, what you've gotten out of it, what's been sort of the epiphanies of, of doing that podcast. Totally. So, you know, teaching teaching on that topic and getting involved in this podcast were two of the most unexpected but most rewarding things that I have done since becoming a professor. And it all came about because I was teaching Introduction to Cultural Anthropology, which is a course that I absolutely love teaching. And the way I had it set up was that we spent a week on each sort of big topic, right? So like a week on religion and a week on gender and sexuality and a week on economic organization and a week on social stratification. And during that social stratification week, I wanted to talk, of course, about race and and racial inequity because, heck, I was teaching in Alabama. And so I, I taught that course a whole bunch of times. And every time I taught it, I would add something to that part. And the first thing that I did was to add a tour of campus that was focused on African American history stuff, heritage stuff. So civil rights stuff that went on on the campus in the 1960s and 70s, 60s. And then prior to that, slaveholding on campus. And I drew on other faculty members who have expertise for that. One of them is Dr. Hillary Green, who's a wonderful historian and professor in the gender and race studies department at Alabama. And the other one is Jason Black, who's no longer at Alabama, but was in the College of Communications. So I drew on those resources. And then at one point, uh, when I first came to Alabama, Jim Binden had been retired for four, four or five years, but was still teaching the department's course on race and human variation because no one else was teaching it. And I asked him to sit on on my class during that week one year because I was beginning to to get really interested in teaching about structural racism, but also about sort of the biological underpinnings of why race doesn't make sense as a form of classifying human difference. And that's pretty hard to do all that in one week in a cultural anthropology class where (laughs) students have had virtually no exposure to any of this stuff. And so I felt like I needed help. And Jim came in and was incredibly helpful, gave me a bunch of resources and lots of feedback. And When I saw how students reacted to that material, I just, it was inspiring to me. And Jim, it turned out, 
unbeknownst to me, had been hoping to pass off this class for a long time. And I took it up. I was like, yes, I'll do this. This is great. And so the course that I was teaching is, it's really a bioamp course that involves a fair amount of history as well and more and more sort of contemporary cultural stuff that I was adding into the course. But it's very much grounded in human evolution and genetics. So luckily I have a background in biology and I was able to relearn a fair amount of that stuff to teach it. So that wasn't too bad, but um, I had a lot of help from Jim. So that is probably the most fantastic course I have ever taught. It's life-changing for students and for me every time I teach it. So I'm going to be teaching it here at Oregon in the Department of International Studies. And so what it's going to involve is a little less human biology and a little more looking at how this question of sort of race and science has played out globally. And that's a fantastic segue into the podcast because that's what we've been doing lately on our podcast. So the podcast is, as you said, called Speaking of Race, and it's really focused on the history and present day implications of the development of racial science. And that's essentially the story of the development of anthropology as a discipline. Right? Anthropology as a discipline was founded in the sort of quest for finding biologically based racial markers. Um, it's like our, our dirty underbelly. And so it's been being part of that podcast, which is really Eric and Jim's brainchild. Eric is a historian of science who's worked on this topic a lot. And of course, Jim is a human biologist who's an expert in human variation. Being part of that has really expanded my understanding of how anthropology came to be and also how science can serve and also really harm humanity at the same time. And so what I've added to that podcast, I guess you could say, is more of an international focus. So we've spent a lot of time in the podcast looking at how racial science developed in Western Europe and the Americas, especially North America. But in the past couple months, we've been beginning to focus a little more on what's going on and what has gone on in other parts of the world. So while I was doing my fieldwork in India this summer, we did a mini series on race and caste in India. And it's been so useful for my work. It's been so useful for me to learn about how the racial science that was being developed in Britain during the colonial period in India actually got sort of tested out in India on caste groups. And so race and caste have a really long and intertwined history that I really wouldn't have investigated to the same degree had I not been producing a couple podcasts on it. What's great about that is that that is going to feed directly back into my teaching in international studies. I can now make the race course that I've been teaching for a long time much more international in its focus. And we are also doing a little mini series right now in Brazil. Being part of that project has been incredibly rewarding in terms of my teaching and also in terms of my research and just in terms of collaboration. I love collaborating with those guys. I know to some extent Jim's perspective because I've heard him speak many times and because I inherited his job and he gave me all of his PowerPoint files. But the combination of the three of you works really, really nicely together. And it's gotten me listening to other podcasts that are going down that as well. I was just tweeting with Eric yesterday that Code Switch is going to be in Birmingham in a, yeah. like a week or so. We're kind of hoping to interview them. I'm not yeah. sure it's going to happen, but we're going to try. That's what I said. I said, you guys got to figure out a way to make this happen. Because some of the topics that you know come up in conversations about British colonialism, they do come right back to where we are now and how we frame everyday language of racism that creeps in. Those sorts of critique that you guys dig into there, I think, are really, really rich and compelling and are 
important to take into the classroom. So I plan to use some of those podcasts. I got to figure out a way to use those in my my classes this fall to keep you here at the University of Alabama in some way, shape, or form. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason we started it was in hopes that it would be a useful teaching tool. And we have heard from a fair number of people that they're using it or planning on using it in universities all over the place. So that's really exciting. We should probably make an announcement since um, the HBA just sent out an email about two important things. What did they send an announcement out about, Kara? One is that abstracts are due for our upcoming April conference. The abstracts are due on October 15th and elections are coming up. There's a number of positions that are open. So if you know somebody who might be good at various positions in the HBA, you should nominate them. Right on. All right. Thank you for um, that. Gary, do you have any uh, more questions for Joe? No, but I want to thank you so much for getting up early, especially in the middle of your move, to come and talk with us today. You bet. It was awesome to talk to you guys. Joe, it's always a pleasure. Can you give us the URL of Speaking of Race? Oh, yeah, sure. You bet. It is speakingofrace.ua.edu. And also, do you have any social media yes. contacts for people to get in touch with you? Absolutely. Well, we have the Facebook page. So you can just Facebook search Speaking of Race. We have the webpage and we're on iTunes. What about you? Well, I haven't set up my new Oregon website yet, but I still have my Alabama website, which is ljweaver.people.ua.edu. And then the Department of International Studies, where I'm going to begin working this fall, is intldept, full depth.uoregon.edu. And I have been Chris. I'm at Chris underscore L-Y. On and, Twitter. and for me on Twitter, I'm at Kara Akbach, C-A-R-A-O-C-O-B-O-C-K. And this has been the Sausage of Science for the Publicity, no, Public Relations Committee. Public Relations Committee. Of the Human Biology Association. Gosh darn it. I'll get that right it's someday. Right. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening. Ciao.